Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers today, actually also ranching. I'm talking to Corey Carmen from Carmen Ranch. She, oh, actually, I don't know if you're she or he. Hi, Corey. Would you introduce yourself? Hi, Severin. This is Corey. Hi, Corey. Corey's lady. <laughs> nice to meet you. Would you mind introducing yourself and your operation? Um, I am a fourth-generation cattle rancher. We um, have grass-fed beef out here in the mountains of northeastern Oregon. We also do pastured pigs and um, have some eggs and honey that we sell at the local farmer's market at Portland. I also work for a company called Estancia, and we sell a USA grass-fed beef um, under the label Pasture One. So... uh Many people are aware that beef is one of the more consolidated sectors of our mega food economy and that most of that beef is produced on stinky feedlots by cows who are unhappy and being fed blocks of feed from irrigated pastures and pooping into a puddle and standing in the puddle. And the alternative to that is uh, out on range and uh, extension of the mother cow operations that grow most of those cows that then stand around board could potentially be a lot more grass-fed beef out on this broad territory of the United States. Could you talk a little bit about the state of the grass-fed beef market and how it could change? Yeah, you know, it's actually a really fascinating time to be involved with grass-fed beef. When I first started Selling grass-fed beef um, 12 years ago, most people had never heard of it, and um, it was a tiny, tiny niche that changed in part thanks to Michael Pollan and other advocates out in the in the food world talking about the health benefits of keeping cattle um, out of the feedlot and on pasture the entire time, their whole life cycle. Um, so recently, the, as the grass-fed beef market has continued to grow, it has become um, both an opportunity and a sort of complicated place to, to raise and, and market um, meat. So just yesterday, USDA announced that they were no longer going to um, enforce a definition of grass-fed. And what we're seeing in the marketplace today is a lot of people using the term grass-fed but not meaning um, that the animals are actually on a 100% forage diet with access to pasture. So um, while it's complicated and while there is certainly a lot of consumer um, sort of misperceptions about what is grass-fed and what isn't, I think the promising thing that we see is that there are clear health benefits associated with raising animals on an all-pasture diet. There are land benefits to um, 
different management practices that um, center around animals on pasture. There's um, premiums for ranchers that want to raise cattle in that way. Um, so overall, the market is growing. It's growing rapidly. Consumers are supporting these efforts. And I think as producers and people involved in this industry, it's, it's our responsibility to communicate really clearly what it is that we do and find those producers that really value our product. So, um, yeah, and of course it's healthy, healthier attitude, I'm sure, by the cows. Absolutely. I, kind of, I was just looking at one of those feed boxes today, and golly Moses, those were some grumpy-looking beasts. Um, I I, I kind of want to chat about you know what happened to lose the 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 USDA standard, but I don't want to get too sucked down a rabbit hole of it. Um, could you just give a little bit of succinct synopsis of what makes that? Um, yeah, what what does that mean for? young agrarians who are interested to start entering the, the business of raising cattle and who are coming out, coming through apprenticeship or coming through ranch jobs uh, and starting to get into the business, um, what is that going to mean for them? It's a really good question. I think, you know, previously since 2006, there was a definition that was to some degree enforced by FSIS of what the term grass-fed meant, and it meant 100% forage-based diet, and there were, um, there were specific rules about that. that is, um, that's no longer the case. So I think... Why? Why, why did that get changed? Because it was too um, hard to enforce? You know, it, it's a good question. USDA... Just revoke, like I said, just um, they will no longer um, certify, or there's no longer a definition for naturally raised or for grass-fed. Um, in fact, the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition has a great press release on their site, sort of criticizing that move um, and and explaining a little bit um, from their perspective about what happened. I think from a producer standpoint, and especially for young producers that are starting out small, it's important to be educated and know the difference between what um, a 100% pasture-based diet does for animals and to be able to clearly communicate that to our customers. Customers are increasingly educated, um, and, and people typically come to us from a variety of different perspectives. The health perspective is huge. Um, people are moving towards anti-inflammatory diets and trying to um, be really proactive about the foods that they eat. The paleo diet is one that we hear a lot about. So the health benefits associated with these diets are very much tied to um, ruminants, getting meat from ruminants that are on a 100% grass-based diet. And so I continue to think there's tremendous opportunity in the market, but I think as people that are both involved in production and in marketing, we just need to be really clear about what it is we're doing and the benefits behind those practices. Well, especially if you're know, being abandoned by 
the protections of a standard. Okay, I want to. I, I think we could go into a long conversation, and I hope we could have it uh, sometime together and get clear about it. But I want to hustle through some topics, and one of them is as a kid who inherited land and came into a family business with all the complexity that's inherent in trying to be in love with and related to the people you do business with. Uh, can you talk about your perspective on land access for new agrarians and how potentially these outfits like Estancia and other group marketing endeavors um, can be a vehicle for those new agrarians once they do find access to land to be able to sell beef into markets that have been built through hopefully the beneficence of investors with forethought and smart people clicking on computers to make good graphics. <laughs> um, so I think that the issue of land access um, for young people especially is, is a huge one, and it's one that I spend a lot of time thinking about and, and talking to other producers and interested people who care about our food and our food supply um, and it's complicated. I think the market opportunities are um, incredibly helpful when it comes to stabilizing the profitability of an agricultural endeavor. I mean, certainly in Pasture One, our objective is to help people get out of, one of our many objectives is to help people get out of, of commodity pricing. And we always look to commodity pricing to inform what we pay for cattle because our market is retailers and that's what they're looking at. But we're really trying to communicate to buyers um, the importance of having more stable pricing for our producers. And so I think that's, that's one big piece. Um, and then the other piece. So easier to build a small business when you have stable pricing and when you're in a, you're in a cluster flux. Exactly. Um, because when you're trying to, to make a mortgage payment on your land and you're following commodity pricing, it becomes really, really challenging, and the mistakes can be so incredibly um, costly to the business. And, and, I mean, I know that when we first started out and we have quite a – even though we did inherit some land, um, we have – quite a bit of annual payments that we make um, in order to actually make the, the operation work. So um, I think another piece, and it's something that um, I talk with our producers about a lot, is there's a, a tremendous opportunity in direct marketing and going directly to a customer base in your region. Um, and But it's also very challenging in the meat world to sell every cut in the animal. So we try to both help support the networks of people that have expertise in, in doing this kind of work, but also work with producers that have their own direct marketing program and help them be more successful in that. So the, the, the dream of Pasture One is that we have a network of producers that um, can go ahead and sell under, who are sort of the representation of the best producers in the region, and they can go out and sell under their own brand name in that region. 
but for cuts that are harder to sell or things that would benefit from aggregation, we can come in and, and take that role. And, of course, that's been a lot of the way that so many we're touched. I just in my previous episode was talking about a lot of the crop groups, you know, citrus industry, the almond industry, other, other crop groups that built the structures uh, to make juice out of their oranges to make marmalade. Sunkist actually left the marmalade business in disgust, but um, that's been traditionally the way that these groups have coordinated themselves. Um, let's go deeper onto land access issues, and maybe just can you spell out a little bit of the the character of the challenge particular to ranching, and I know that you're interested in integrating cropping and you know, growing, doing pasture cropping and being able to have forage for pigs and for cows and increasing the integration of farm and ranch. But maybe you could just give us some basic, characterize the challenge entering ranching as, as compared to entering farming. You know, the, the challenge with, with ranching is, um, especially from the cow-calf side, we are often dependent on rangeland, and rangeland, especially rangeland with um, a beautiful view, is valued, um, or the cost of, of buying it far, far exceeds its productive value. And so that is um, having access to rangeland, which um, is, is pretty critical in sort of Western ranching operations, is is a constant challenge. Um, and then I think with ranching, you know, we irrigated land in the West is also important um, to have places that the animals can go during the dry times and, and continue to gain weight. So um, I think having a, a diverse land base Exactly, um, and to to match with the seasonality is really important, and in, of course, that means um, having access and knowing the economics behind these different types of, you know, whether it's crop ground, irrigated pastures, rangeland, prairie land, timbered rangeland. Um, so a lot of lot of different moving pieces, and a lot of thinking that uh, ranchers need to do to really have good seasonal forage in front of their livestock during all the different seasons. Well, and of course, you know, we, we only have about five minutes left, because so we're, we're going to have to skip a rock quickly over some big topic here, but it seems like one of the big projects in aligning what is increasingly a kind of absentee owner pattern on some of these scenic landscapes with the the livelihoods and prospects of the agrarians who are actually out there moving cattle and fences around and setting up water and uh, engaged in what's this thing called stewardship. It's figuring out how not only to communicate to the consumer the value of these happy, healthy animals, but how to communicate with those who increasingly control the capital that controls the ownership and the land. And also, um, when it's state land or federal land, working to advocate 
that those better practices um, get more leverage in the kind of lease, the marketplace for leases, it seems like. Absolutely. And you only really have a minute to answer this kind of question, but what does that look like? How do we do better with the landowners and with the, with the state actors at getting better deals for those young agrarians? It's, it's a very good question, and I think, just to put it quickly, it's relationships. There are some phenomenal groups that are working on um, capital, access to capital for young agrarians. Um, on the, and um, there are some great groups that are doing work on the federal and state land side. But at the end of the day, it comes down to your relationship with your BLM or your range con or your neighbor who lives in an urban place a long ways away but happens to own a thousand acres. Um, and it's a, it's a lot of hard work. The real work continues. Uh, Corey, thank you for joining us. Sorry, thank that's you so a little bit of a short session, me. but I, I thank you, and I, I wonder if maybe I'll see you at the National Sustainable Ag Coalition meeting uh, next week. Probably not, unfortunately, but I can't wait to hear about it. Oh, good. Okay. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for what you're doing, and thank you all for what you're doing. May the force be with you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.